This is episode number 274, How to Stay Grounded While Striving for More with Brad Stolberg. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. Heroic individualism is a never-ending game of one-upsmanship against yourself and other people. So you're constantly trying to beat yourself and other people where measurable achievement is the main arbiter of success. And the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. So you never actually arrive. You think that if you just accomplish this or just win that race or just achieve that thing or just fall in love with that perfect person, then you'll be content. But what you find is that there is no arriving at contentment and having that mindset actually makes you miserable. Whereas contentment is an ongoing practice of the principles that we talked about about groundedness. So contentment is every day, it is aligning your being with your doing and practicing those things. I am super pumped. I am speaking in person at an event in Vancouver, BC this weekend. It's called the Planted Expo, and it's two days long. It's Canada's biggest plant-based event. And there are so many other amazing speakers there that I can't wait to listen to as well. I'm going to speak about how to use curiosity to make big changes in your life. And it's one of my favorite things to talk about. And I'm also doing a second talk on the same day. Both of these will be on Saturday, November 20th. And I will be talking about all of my favorite plant-based tips. So if you're in the area, you want to come check it out, make sure to go to plantedlife.com and get some tickets. If you haven't checked out my weekly newsletter, it comes out every single Monday with an article that I research and write on the topics of motivation, mindset, and habit change. You can sign up for that at sonyaloney.com slash newsletter. It's really fun. I love connecting with you guys in that way. And if you like the podcast, chances are you'll like the newsletter as well. So go to sonyaloney.com slash newsletter and get on the list. And while you're there, just as a quick reminder, you can punch on over to my Mindset Academy. You can find that on the website or you can find it at moxieandgrit.com. That's the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, where I go into detail on all of the mental skills that you need to crush it to take on big challenges. And the Mindset Academy is really focused towards athletes, but all of the skills there can apply to just doing hard things in your life. And I've had so many people ask me, how do you get the courage to sign up for some of the things that you do? Or how do you build confidence? Or how do you be more resilient whenever you've had a setback? And all of those skills I wanted to put into one place. That way you can access it time and time again to help you during your journey. So that's the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. You can find that at sonyalooney.com in the show notes and also at moxieandgrit.com. That is a beautiful transition into today's amazing episode. I love talking to Brad Stolberg. He is a friend of mine and somebody that I look up to in my business and as a writer as well. Most of us try to balance the act of doing and the feeling of being in our lives. That's right, the act of doing and the feeling of being, which are often at odds. We ask ourselves questions like, how can I work hard and have success without burning out? Yes, I've been there uh, on the burnout side, but also I've been learning how to work hard without burning out. And questions like, what do I need to feel fulfilled while striving for improvement? Because a lot of times we'll achieve something, but we still feel like there's more. And we'll keep saying, I'll be happy when I achieve X. And we put off our happiness into the future when really we can feel fulfilled and grounded while we're in the process of going for big things in our lives. Brad Solberg is the author of the best-selling new book, The Practice of Groundedness, which I highly recommend, and also Peak Performance. He regularly researches, writes, and coaches on the many elements of health, well-being, and sustainable performance. We have lots of very similar views, and he's also the podcast host of The Growth Equation. So definitely check out his work. If you like my work, I know for a fact that you'll like his because he is a really insightful guy who speaks with a lot of clarity. And today, he returns to the podcast for his third conversation, all about how to feel more grounded in your life. His research suggests six principles of groundedness, acceptance, presence, patience, vulnerability, community, and movement. And he's distilled those down into his book where you can learn how to practice those on a regular basis. We go into some of those principles in more detail in today's podcast. 
And when I say distill down, I don't mean reduce in a way that takes away the nuance. In fact, Brad Stolberg and his business partner and writing partner, Steve Magnus, love talking about the nuance. And that's something that I think is incredibly important in this day and age, because a lot of times we try and get solid answers for things. And the answer a lot of the time is it depends. It depends on the set of circumstances. It depends on your inputs. It depends on you as an individual. And a lot of times with optimization, we try and create these blanket statements or these absolute statements that really don't apply to the individual. They're often a good starting point for discussion or for self-inquiry, but then you have to take it a few steps deeper and figure out what is going to work for you. So back to Brad's book, I digress. Brad's book combines ancient wisdom with modern science to dive into how to build a strong foundation. And I love the ancient wisdom part because a lot of times parables and examples and metaphors from the past can be a really great way to understand a concept. And then hearing how the science matches up to it can be a really great way to build clarity and understanding. We talk about separating your work from your sense of self. And I know that this is something that a lot of us listeners can relate with, whether you're an athlete or you identify based on the type of work you do. That's often the first thing that people ask whenever they meet you is they ask what you do for work. And that's something that I never ask whenever I first meet somebody because I don't wanna put them in that box. And our sense of self is different from the work that we do, but it can be really difficult to untangle that in some situations. We talk about how heroic individualism can be challenging and what that actually is. The importance of having local community, and this is something that I've really been focusing on to build relationships offline in a world, in a workplace where I do everything online. We also talk about how to have a more deliberate relationship with striving. Brad's work has been featured in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Atlantic, the Wall Street Journal, the Los Angeles Times, Time Magazine, Forbes, and so much more. Brad lives in Asheville, North Carolina, in a neighborhood that has bears in it, which we also will talk about. And if you like this episode, make sure you check out the other two episodes I recorded with Brad. The first episode was actually with Brad and Steve, and it was about their first book, Peak Performance, and that was in the early days of the podcast, and a book that I frequently return to and highly recommend. And the second book that we talked about was their book, The Passion Paradox. Big shout out and thank you to the Patreon supporters of this podcast and those of you who have donated on PayPal. That does not go unnoticed, and I do turn away a lot of ads. We have some ads on the show, but I try to make sure that there are products that I personally believe in and use and are relevant to the podcast. So you might notice that I have less podcast ads on this show compared to other shows. So again, thank you to those of you for your support. You can go to patreon.com slash the Sonia Looney show or click the PayPal banner if you'd like to donate to the show, which helps pay my audio engineer, Roma, who has been doing a brilliant job since episode one, editing these amazing episodes. And also to my assistant, Rebecca, who just had a baby. Shout out, Rebecca. And she helps make sure that this podcast is uploaded on time and that the materials that I post on Instagram look great. So let's get into today's awesome episode with Brad Stolberg. Brad, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's what, our third or fourth or fifth time? I think it's our third, but there was another time where you helped me interview David Epstein, and that was really awesome. Oh, that was fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, it's great to be back. Yeah. And congratulations on your newest book. And I'm so excited to get to dig into it because it's such an important topic. Thanks. I really appreciate it. So the book is, a, is Groundedness. That's the short term, I guess, for the title. What's the full title? The full title is The Practice of Groundedness. Yes. Okay. And I, I want to get into this title in a little bit, but how did you come to decide to read that book? Because your first book was Peak Performance. Your second book was Passion Paradox. And then this one is about groundedness. Right. So if you think about a mountain, the peak of the mountain is what people tend to immediately focus on or look at or admire. And then perhaps if the mountain is really steep and has some prominence, like a very stark slope, then people might admire the rise of the mountain. But very rarely do people look at the base of the mountain. Yet, if you know anything about geology, it's the strength of the mountain's base that determines its sustainability over time. And we humans are the same way. And much like people tend to focus on the peaks or the slopes of mountains, we tend to focus on the, the peak or the slope 
of our identities of ourselves and perhaps neglect the foundation more than we ought to. And um, this is really a book about the foundation. And I started to work on this before COVID, but I'm really glad that it's coming out when it is, because I think COVID as a global event, certainly in the Western world, has a lot of people reevaluating the foundation of their life and of their identity and of what they want to do and who they are. Yeah. And it's so interesting because the second we get busy, the thing to go are all those foundational things that keep us going. And I've, I've noticed that in myself and I've tried really hard to rectify that. So for you, how did you come up with these different elements of what make a strong foundation? So all of my, my work that makes it into books comes from, I use the metaphor of a three-legged stool. So the first leg is modern science. The second leg is ancient wisdom and history. And then the third leg is daily practice and application. And when I have a hypothesis or a thesis for a book, I spend a lot of time on those three legs, trying to find patterns, themes, convergence. And often I don't, which are books that never get written. But in this case, there was a lot of convergence across the latest science, the old wisdom in history, and then what people out in the world are are finding valuable. And um, those became the six principles of groundedness, of building this foundation in one's life. How did you get into the ancient wisdom parks? That's something that some of us just kind of randomly find. Yeah. So for me, I went through about a year of weekly therapy, like psychotherapy with a wonderful therapist whose practice was largely rooted in acceptance and commitment therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, which are two of the third wave therapies, which basically means there was first like Freudian, then psychodynamic, and now this work. And what's interesting about this work is it's been studied pretty meticulously in controlled trials and and has been proved to be effective. Whereas while other therapies have worked, their mechanisms haven't necessarily been studied. So on the one hand, it's, these are like the newest methods of psychotherapy that have been studied. But on the other hand, just about everything in cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for short, acceptance and commitment therapy, ACT for short, is teachings from ancient Eastern wisdom traditions. So it's as if like, you know, Stephen Hayes, and I think his name is Ernest Beck, I want to say, or Stephen Beck, the person behind CBT. It's like they read Buddhism, Taoism, a little bit of Stoicism, and they're like, let's study this. And what do you know? It it works. So for me, it was like um, first learning some of these tools to help my own mental health then learning about the science behind them, and then coming to find that these are the core principles of these ancient wisdom traditions. And I said in the East, but Stoicism in the West has a lot of good in it as well. Yeah. And it's just so interesting that some of these values or these, these elements are principles are exactly what we want to feel, but we don't even realize it. And something that I've been thinking about Mm. a lot especially a couple of years ago, like I wrote down, like, when do I feel the most stressed? And it's whenever Mm -hmm. I'm not listening to some of those principles, like when I'm rushing or when I'm not being patient or when I'm not accepting the situation, can you go into what those principles are before I just kind of go off about the different ones? Yeah. So why don't we list all six and then we can go in whatever direction you want to take us. Cool. So the first one is accept where you are to get where you want to go. The second one is be present to own your energy and attention. The third one is be patient to get there faster. Fourth one is embrace vulnerability to build genuine strength and confidence. The fifth one is build deep community. And then the sixth one is move your body to ground your mind. So in short, it's acceptance, presence, patience, vulnerability, community, and movement. Which one's the hardest for you to keep in line? Probably patience. I mean, they're all somewhat challenging. Movement, less so. That's really become like grooved and and habitual. Presence is becoming more grooved and habitual. And that's certainly been a journey. But um, patience is still tricky. I am a 
doer at heart. And as much as I work on my being, I'm, I'm still have a propensity to want to do. And often I struggle to, to slow down. And I find this much more on a micro level than a macro level. So I can be quite patient about a book project or a rough patch in parenting or an argument with my partner, those kinds of things I have no problem or little problem being patient with. But the day-to-day, I do still find myself feeling like I don't have enough transition time. There's like no time to catch my breath. Everything is stacked on top of each other. And I think that comes from my propensity, again, to want to do all this good stuff. But then I'm stressed out like you are. And it's like, wait a minute, I need some more time to be day to day. So that is, that's the one I struggle the most with. Yeah. It seems like we're just always trying to squeeze as many things we possibly can into a day. And the way that things have gone digitally, it just, it makes it almost addictive to try to just like, Hey, like I'll go to the bathroom. I'll answer like a few emails while I'm in the bathroom. And then like, maybe at the red light, I'll like, and you know, it's just, you just feel like you should always be doing something. And then people get so uncomfortable yeah. when they're not doing something. And just that feeling of just sitting there, like just for yeah. a second. It's funny that you mentioned that something that sometimes comes up with my coaching clients and myself too, I'm, I'm more aware of it. So not as often as it used to, but this notion of you'll be doing work at a computer or having a conversation like this. And then to your point, you'll have to go to the bathroom and it's like, let me grab my phone. So on the way to the bathroom, I can check my text messages and get back to people. And that's become pretty normal. It's not like a, it's not a unordinary behavior Yeah, When you step back, it's pretty crazy that we feel the need to like make productive the walk to the bathroom. And I can get down with like, you know, especially if it's number two, like you can, you can do some good work. I've done a lot of good reading and thinking on the pot, but the walk to the pot that has to be filled with something that's batshit crazy. Yet we're all guilty of doing it because as you said, we live amidst all of these things that allow us to be productive all the time in a culture that says that we ought to with an expectation perceived or real that we should. Yeah. And I also think that a big part of that is like our worth as a human is tied to productivity. And like a lot of times we hear about people's self-worth being tied to their achievement. And that is also, you know, one of the, the things that happens, but then you hear like, well, don't make it about the achievement, make it about the work. But then you feel like you need to work every single second so that you can feel worthy. So I think that that also ties into that of like, well, if I'm busy and I'm doing something, then I'm then I'm worthy. Yeah, for sure. And this this I think what you're getting at is this very specific and predictable symptom of overwork and maybe burnout being around the corner, which is a feeling of not wanting to work or you work too much or kind of dreading having to work. But then when you try to shut it down and not work, you become really restless and anxious about not doing anything. So it's like you're stuck. And I think that comes from exactly what you said, that it's like, oh, well, work is where we get meaning from and engagement and stimulation. So we're just going to push this all the way. And then hitting the brakes becomes really hard. But if we never hit the brakes, then eventually our world narrows and narrows and narrows, and it's just work, and we become addicted to it. Now, it's not always like a terrible thing. There are worse addictions. So the example that I like to talk about recently is the woman who's the first generation immigrant from Hungary who did the really the foundational research behind the mRNA vaccine that is keeping us all safe from COVID-19. From my limited reading about her, she is a bona fide workaholic. And I am so glad that she is. (laughs) So it's not inherently a bad thing. It can cause challenges. And I think I want to make people more aware of like the trade-offs that they have to make. And ideally help people care about their craft, pursue excellence, achieve peak performance, 
but do it in a way that feels more sustainable and then also more fulfilling. And that's going to look different for different people. We all have different brains and different chemical wiring at different points of time in life. Things are different when you've got young kids running around versus when you don't, when you're married versus single, when you're old versus younger, and it's fluid, but just trying to give people some tools to kind of say, hey, like, here are the things I really prioritize. Maybe work is one of them, maybe not. Here are some principles to try to rein it in. And here are some ways to think about how these things might shift over the course of a lifetime. Yeah, I think like tying into this, and this is something that's in your book and something that you talk about regularly is how to have a healthy relationship with striving and finding, you know, harmony with that. And that is so incredibly hard, especially whenever you are, to use your words, a pusher or an excitement junkie who just wants to go after that next thing. Yeah, I do think so. I'm curious. I'm going to flip the question back to you. What principle do you find best? And we'll talk about why the word practice is in there. So Mm -hmm. what principle though, when you're actually practicing, do you find most helpful knowing that you are like a kick-ass, truly world-class athlete, also a creative, also a partner, also a parent. And my sense is you probably want to be the best you can be at all these things. So what helps you stay grounded most? Um, It depends on the day. I would say that the thing that I've learned the most since having my son and and being pregnant and trying to strive through pregnancy is acceptance. Yeah, Being like, Hey, I'm doing the best I can right now. And my best right now isn't going to look like my best three years ago. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. Like that, this is just how things are. And that doesn't mean that what I'm doing isn't meaningful. It doesn't mean that it's not good enough, but that's, that's easier said than done. Like it's something that's always at the forefront of my mind, but it's catching that judgment really, really quickly before you start telling all these different stories about it. And then having, having that conversation uh, like that with myself saying like, Hey, like, it's okay. Like I'm accepting where I'm at right now, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be like that forever. Do you find that you have like a longing for or addiction for relevance? So like when you're atop the mountain biking world, everyone in that community knows you. And it's like, do you want to recreate that with a podcast or high? Cause there does feel like some tension between being like a celebrity on the internet versus like the best partner, parent, community member locally that you can be. Given that you've kind of done this in the sports world and are now like an internet person and so much more than that, but you know, spend some time on a business as an internet person. How have you coped with that or how have you managed through that? Uh, For me, it's been like defining what success means in those different areas. Like, of course I want to be the best at everything I'm doing, but it's like, what's, what's the reality? Well, I've been doing a podcast for four and a half years and it's doing well, but it's not one of the number one podcasts in the world. And let's face it, it's just not going to be, but it's like coming back to the reason why I do it. It's like, I do it because it helps other people. I do it because it brings me a lot of personal joy and fulfillment. And it always fills that need. Cause I, I love learning and it always challenges me to continue learning. So that's what I focus on with all the different projects and things that I'm working on is like connecting back to my values and why I'm doing it. And saying that, hey, like, even if it becomes number one at something, all the different things I'm doing, that's never going to be enough because I just know that. So yeah. just being being happy with the work that I get to do on a daily basis is something that I'm always, quote, practicing because I always am striving and wanting more and wanting to be better. But then I remind myself that, well, being better isn't go- like, why do I want it? That's that thing. Am I trying to feel a yeah. certain way? And then what do I need to feel the way that I want to feel? And the answer is not getting another shiny thing. Wow. Have you read The Practice of Groundedness cover to cover? Uh, I have read it, but this is something that's been on my mind for a long time, really, especially since I, I got pregnant because that put the the brakes on a lot of things that I was working on. I was on. just going to say that is like the best at like, you know, you guys can either read the book or like maybe <laughs> you can shine like some pixie dust through people's headphones because that is such a elegant, succinct summary of like the practice the practice part of things and like wrestling with the tension between striving, wanting to be the best, caring about results, but also not being swallowed by those things in a way that makes life miserable. I think it's a really privileged place to say, well, once you make it to the top of the mountain, it it isn't what you thought it was going to be. Like not many people have that opportunity to say that. 
So, you know, it's hard to, to tell people that without the experiencing it themselves. So I, I like challenging people to like, ask, what am I trying to achieve versus how do I want to feel? And are those things in alignment? Yeah. Love it. Yeah. What about you? Like you, you do all of these different things. Like you've written lots of books, you coach clients, you have a podcast. Like how do you have a healthy relationship with that striving and that work? Yeah, for sure. So keeping it fun, I think. So I try to do everything that you do. Probably not as well, but I do what I can. So I second everything that you say. Um, I think keeping it fun is really important for me and particularly taking the work very seriously, but not taking myself seriously at all. Mm. So what does that look like in practice? Like the practice of groundedness, this book I care deeply about. I think it's excellent. I'm going to do everything I can for the book, but the book was such a team effort with so many people and like the the book is just like my brain at one point of time. It's not me, but now the book is its own thing. So separating my sense of self from my work and like really caring about the work, but realizing that like, oh, that's something that I did. It's no longer me. That's been really helpful because I can feel like I want the book to be really relevant without it feeling like I need to be really relevant. If anything, my dream in life, and this partly gets into just my temperament is being more introverted and liking solitude and just being in nature would be that we joked about this before. I wish books would sell themselves would be that the book was like the most popular book in the world. And because of it, I didn't really have to do anything. And people only knew who I was because they read the book. Mm-hmm. Now, I'd still love to talk to you because I could talk to you every day, but like we wouldn't even have to hit record. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think a lot of people get into this trap where their work becomes about them. And suddenly it's like, oh, look at me. I'm on podcast. I have my name on this book. Like now I am famous or now I have won or now I'm at the top of the mountain versus like wanting the work to be the top of the mountain. So paradoxically, you can kind of just disappear off the mountain altogether. That's how I feel. Like my dream is for this book to sell a million copies so I can just hang out in my library, read and go on hikes with my family all day. Mm -hmm. That's such a great way to describe it, to separate yourself from the work and let the work stand for itself. But it's so incredibly hard because a lot of the work that you do is sort of tied to you as a person. So especially if you're a pro athlete, (laughs) because you are the work, you know? Yeah. And then it's like multiple selves, right? So there's like you, the athlete, you the community member, you, the family member, you, the creative person. And I think something that athletes struggle with is like when their whole identity becomes you, the athlete, and then you are the work and then everything is work. I am also a big believer that willpower is not the right way to go about this. I think that you've got to design like the context of your life in a way that promotes how you want to feel. So back to like separating your work from yourself. So many people have asked why I'm not on Instagram or like why I'm not on TikTok now, or like why I don't post videos of my strength training or like why no one ever sees videos with Caitlin or Theo in it. And it's simple because like then more of my life becomes work. Mm-hmm. And I want the like I want to have clearly defined work that I will promote and I will push and I will want to get retweeted and liked. And then I want to have life that is completely separate from that because as much as I know about this stuff and as much as I try to practice it and coach toward it, I know that I am not strong enough. So if I start posting pictures of like my son or my deadlift or smiling with Caitlin at dinner, I'm going to want that validation. So it's like, I know how dangerous that pond is. So I'm just intentionally not going to step foot in it. Yeah, it's definitely a slippery slope. Like I could talk about this with you for an entire, just this topic for an entire podcast, Um, but I'd love to move on and talk about heroic individualism. Like you kind of came up with this term in the book. Can you talk about Mm -hmm. what that is and how this is kind of related to what we're talking about? (laughs) For sure. So heroic individualism is a never ending game of one-upsmanship against yourself and other people. So you're constantly trying to beat yourself and other people where measurable achievement is the main arbiter of success. And the goalpost is always 10 yards down the field. So you never actually arrive. You think that if you just accomplish this or just win that race or just achieve that thing or just fall in love with that perfect person, then you'll be content. 
But what you find is that there is no arriving at contentment. And having that mindset actually makes you miserable. Whereas contentment is an ongoing practice of the principles that we talked about, about groundedness. So contentment is every day, it is aligning your being with your doing and practicing those things. Heroic individualism mirrors a concept in ancient Eastern psychology. It was a very severe disorder called hungry ghost syndrome. And the hungry ghost has a very wide mouth and then a super long neck and like a huge bloated, enormous stomach. And the hungry ghost keeps on stuffing themselves full and eating all in all of this food. And it goes down this long neck. And then because it's a ghost, it can never digest what it's eating. So it gets sick and bloated, but it can't stop eating. And I think that consumerism in particular, the variety of consumerism that's all about outward achievement, which is so much of the stuff that we buy is like, here's my fancy car. Here's my fancy watch. Here's my big house, whatever it is. That's just turning us all into hungry ghosts. Yeah, like, and I I know you also mentioned, um, I think it was Arrival Fallacy by yeah. Tal Ben-Shahar. And I love like yeah. the work of some of the positive psychology researchers out there. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's like, I'll be happy when I get X. I'll be happy when I do this. And it's like, we just want to feel happy now. But we think that if we get something or turn into something other than what we already are today, then we'll be happy. And I think this ties back into that acceptance piece. For sure. If there's a difference between excitement and ease, and I think we confuse the two. So excitement is if my book hits the New York Times bestseller list, then I'll be happy. Or if I sell a million copies, then I can disappear. Or um, if I win this race, then I'll be able to say that I'm truly a triathlete. Or if I go sub three in a marathon, then I'm a runner, whatever it might be. For some people, if I publish this book, like then I'll be content. That's excitement. And excitement feels a lot more like anxiety than ease. Whereas ease is like, I'm sitting by the fire with my friends, sipping on a bourbon or a tea, and I could die right now and it would be okay. And generally, the times we feel ease are not when we're striving and certainly not when we're thinking about striving. So maybe you feel ease when you're actually writing or actually in a conversation like this. But when you're thinking about how many books am I going to sell or how many downloads is this podcast going to get, that is not ease. That's excitement. And excitement, uh, as I said, is a lot closer to anxiety. It tends to be narrowing. It tends to make us tight. It tends to elevate our heart rate, whereas ease is just like relaxation. And I think that there needs to be a balance of these two things, because again, like I, I should know her name. I can't pronounce it. So I never try, but that the woman researcher behind the MRNA vaccines, I'm really glad that she was super excited about this research because excitement drives innovation. It's forward looking, much like anxiety is forward looking. But if all you have is excitement and you're not wired like a freak and most people aren't, then eventually you get tired and, and exhausted and burnt out. Yeah. And I mean, this ties right back to peak performance and then the growth equation, which has become the name of your business and your, your awesome podcast that everybody should go listen to stress plus rest equals growth and stress can equal, right. you know, st- stress doesn't have to be like stressful shoulders up in ears. Like I feel like I'm worried, like stress can be a positive thing. Stress can be excitement of like working towards something like that, that vaccine researcher. But then if you don't follow yeah. it up with that downtime, that sitting by the fire with your friends and having that feeling of ease, well, then that's not going to be good for you. Yeah. And it's, I, I'm going to mispronounce this, but I believe it's Catalin Carico is the researcher. So awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So something that I uh, was just thinking about before we hit record, before we started, this was the idea, like, I hate the idea of balance. I I like to look at it more as intentional imbalance, which sort of plays to what we were just talking about, like having periods of, of quote, stress and periods of rest. But how does grand groundedness, um, like relate to balance? Cause it seems like there is some sort of relationship there. Well, it's interesting. I don't necessarily know if it's balance as much as it's stability, but you could argue that those are the same thing. This is not like the writer part of my brain really Mm -hmm. nitpicking at words. I like it. So, (laughs) so I think stability is the, the quality to just stand strong and not get thrown off balance, regardless of what's happening around you. And 
in today's world, it could be enough just to like stand strong and have some peace and confidence and ease amidst like all the frantic and frenetic noise of the 21st century. And I think that by practicing the six principles, what you're trying to get is that. You're trying to get that base of a mountain that allows you just to be like, I am here and I don't care if it's raining Donald Trump or if it's pouring climate change or if it's like hurricaning COVID. I'm not going to do nothing about it, but I'm going to stand here. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to see what's happening clearly. And then I'm going to take an action that aligns with my values. I'm going to go back to the balance word instead of the stability word, because a lot of times I think people are trying to quote balance everything because they're trying to achieve a certain feeling again. Like if I can balance everything, well then, then I'll be happy. But Mm -hmm. it's like, like, I feel like the groundedness principles, and there is a difference there. There can also be a difference between the happiness and content feeling. Cause it seems like happiness can happen in, you know, bursts almost, but you can still be content and have something bad be happening at the same time in your life. Whereas it's hard to be happy when something bad is happening. Yes. I completely agree with, yeah, with so everything like the, that you said. It's like the groundedness tying to, you know, not needing to balance everything, but just coming back to what those principles are. But you know, what, what about the people that can't or have a very difficult time? Like I'm, I'm looking at vulnerability here as one of them. Um, yeah. I've mentioned to you, I, I have a health coaching practice now. And one of the things that comes up a lot is people being vulnerable with themselves and their own emotions and being afraid to even admit their own emotions to themselves. It's like, what are some, some tools? Cause to, in order to be vulnerable with others, it seems like you need to be able to be vulnerable with yourself first. Um, so mm-hmm. what are some tools people can, can use to work on that principle? Yeah. So I think the first big thing is to realize that as hard as it is to go face your vulnerabilities and to be open with yourself about them before you're even open with anyone else about them, just you yourself, the amount of energy and distress it causes to push them down and ignore them is always going to be more. There is this parable Uh, in Greek mythology about a god named Pan. And Pan lived just beyond the village boundary. And whenever villagers would go out and get lost and stumble into the territory of Pan, he was so spooky and terrorizing that the villagers would freeze in fear and they would literally be scared to death. Whereas some villagers they intentionally, deliberately went to go see Pan. And for those villagers, what they got in return was strength, wisdom, and compassion. And this is an allegory about vulnerability. So we all have our pans, our weak spots, the things that scare us that we don't necessarily want to see. And if we pretend they're not there or we try to ignore them or we run away from them, eventually they're going to completely uproot us, unmoor us. Whereas if we intentionally go see those things, doesn't mean every day, all day, but just check in with them, not be scared of them, not repress them, then they lose their power over us and they tend to make us much wiser. Because often on the other side of our deepest vulnerabilities are the things that we want or our values. So if a vulnerability is mortality and death and like really grappling with impermanence, Well, the other side of that is life and living. If uh, vulnerability is loneliness and feeling isolated, even if you are with other people, even if you're in a romantic relationship, then on the other side of that is like a longing for connection. And it's very hard to do this work. Sometimes it makes sense to do it with a therapist, a coach, a colleague, a friend, a community member, clergy. And it's also very important because I think that it it opens up like more richness and depth in life. And it makes you stronger because you can like try to avoid things and cover them up and push them down. But your mind body system knows that you're doing that. And once you drop the weight and actually like acknowledge those things and open yourself up to them, well, then you're not hiding anything. And when you're not hiding anything, then you can be really strong. Yeah. I found that confidence comes from being able to look yourself, look at these different things that you might not want to admit to yourself about yourself and be like, I'm okay. 
and I can have all these other things going on in the background that maybe I, I don't like, but that doesn't define me. Like it's like, yes. it's not a personalization of what those things are. Yeah. It's like, Oh, like there's some fear. All right. Now that I recognize it, name it and get comfortable with it. I'm no longer scared of it. And if I'm no longer scared of it, then I can just go. I think a big one that people don't like to admit is jealousy. And going back to talking about social media and all the different things is like, we assign people to have the things that we want and we feel jealous and we, and it might not even be reality. Like in, in fact, it's probably not reality. And then we stuff those emotions and then we walk around feeling like we're not content or not enough in our life. And then we don't even want to acknowledge like, Hey, like that's how I have a, um, that's how I try to maintain a relationship with social media. That's healthy is like the second I, f- I feel myself feeling jealous or like putting those emotions out there, I stop looking at it. And then I say, well, what, what do I want? Like, what is this mm-hmm. bringing out in me? But like, it's, it, it's hard to do that. It's hard to admit to yourself. Like I feel lack when I see this. Yeah. And I also wonder, like, even the jealousy thing, it's like, okay, so maybe the surface emotion is jealousy, but what you actually want is like to be known or to feel loved. And you're probably going to get that more from like actual real human beings in your life than anyone on the internet. Oh my gosh. So yeah, that like that level of like, what's the next thing? I think in a lot of people, myself included, we tend to spend more time online doing that kind of comparison when we are feeling like less grounded in our own lives. And it's this vicious cycle because the comparisons then make you feel even worse. Like, you know, at the most extreme, okay, let's imagine like teenage you or teenage person just madly, wildly falling in love. Like I finally found the right person. You think that person gives a shit about their retweets on Twitter? Of course not. It's not even like it'd be out of the question. They'd be like, take all my Instagram followers. I am in love. And um, my own, like a coach of mine that I've worked with, a guy named Judson Brewer talks about like, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. And I think that's an example of it. But to your point, judging yourself about it isn't good because the worst thing you could do is be like, oh, there I am comparing what a terrible person. How could I certified health coach still compare? Your tone was perfect. It's like, oh, like comparing time to step away and like ask myself what's underneath this and then go to try to pursue that. Yeah. And I'm glad that you brought up, you kind of like brought up the community piece. And that is something that so many of us like had to sort of give up during the pandemic, but also that so many of us didn't have because so much of our lives have gone online and there are digital relationships that turn into more than just a digital relationship where you have like a true connection with somebody um, which is different than just commenting on somebody's photo or t- retweeting somebody's um, stuff. But like local community, like when I read that in your book, that was something that our family was really striving for and something we didn't have yeah. in our where we last lived. And that's the the impetus as to why we moved to where we moved is we needed that community piece. Yeah, for sure. So local community is so important. And we I could go on for hours and hours as to why. But there's something about being physically situated in a place with physical institutions and physical beings, people, that just helps us feel less anxious, more focused, more calm, more strong, more stable. And one of the enticements of the internet and one of the truly great things about it is you can find people that have your interests anywhere. And it's pretty neat to be able to go find the other eight researchers, writers, coaches that think about this all day and have a relationship with them. There's nothing wrong with that. It's wonderful. The issue is when that completely replaces actual community. So suddenly your neighbors aren't cool enough to hang out with because, well, you know, he's just a veterinarian or she's just an optometrist. What do I have in common with them? Like, I'm this writer, I'm this runner, I'm this lawyer, and I'm going to do all my stuff online. Um, yet that like totally blows the point. So some of like the most, um, well-known people that I know in sport or the arts, they tend to get really ungrounded, anxious, restless when they start living only like in the world of like highly known good performers or whatever, versus like, oh, I'm like just the normal old person to my neighbors. 
So I am like the big people are always like, how do you build deep community? I'm like, easy, like, you know, get to know your neighbors, the actual people that live on your block. Well, how am I going to like talk to them, ask them about their dog, offer to mow their lawn. Um, well, they're not creatives. Okay. Guess what? Just cause you're a creative doesn't mean that you're special. <laughs> um, so I think that like, we have this high bar of like, everything should be glitzy and IG ready and stuff, but you know, I am, I'm a big proponent of that. Um, it's been something that I've been really deliberate about and, um, I feel just absolutely grounded in my neighborhood, even though like no one, I mean, they might know that I write like no one, I'm not having this conversation with my neighbors, put it that way. And that's fine. And it's great that I'm having this conversation with you. Like that's where the internet is good. And if you were my neighbor, would we talk a nerd out? Yes. But my point is like, you don't have to have, it doesn't have to be perfect. And I think the internet offers the opportunity for perfect alignment but not in real life. And I'd rather have like non-perfect alignment with some of my time in real life than constant perfection. I think this is true about internet dating too. So it's you, like- Keep going about that. <laughs> yeah, well, like internet dating, it's the same thing. Like, I, like you know, oh, this perfect, like the, the perfect person has to be out there. Or, well, I'm not limited to my geography anymore. So like I can find the perfect person out there. But it's really hard to like move across the country or to another country and to do all this stuff. And when there's no constraints, like there tends to be a lot of anxiety in a situation of like unmoredness or, or, or non-groundedness. So maybe like that, you've helped me get, get to this more concise way of saying it. Maybe you could think about community twofold. There's like online, virtual colleagues, cool, like conversations that really appeal to you community. And the internet's great for that. And then there's like constrained community, which is like the places and people that you can walk to see. Yeah. When you're talking about just not having no constraints because of kind of where I'm at, I was thinking about toddlers and how they need to have boundaries and they need to have constraints. And if it was like free range, go do whatever you want. It's like, they have a total meltdown because it's just too much. Yep. And, and we're a bunch of toddlers. Yeah, we are. <laughs> <laughs> Something else I was thinking about when you're talking about your neighbors and they like, they might know about your career and, and they might not. And it's like, when you just walk out your door, feeling seen in a different way, kind of for just like the physical being you are and the energy you put out, that's really different than somebody who comes to find you online where it already comes with all these ties of like, Oh, you're this, you're that you're it's like, whenever you go talk to your neighbors, it's like, they probably don't know about all those different things unless they've, right. you know, gone and looked you up online, but you've already built your relationship on different things than what it might've been online. And that feels really good to be seen in that way. Yeah. So true. And I think like the more time that you spend online, the more important it is to have that offline community and way of being seen. I also wanted to ask, this is kind of random and a, a yeah. really hard right turn but I wanted to ask you about the bear in your garage when you were training in your garage, speaking of neighbors and your community. <laughs> Wait, how are you aware of the bear? You talked about it on your podcast. Oh, okay. It's so funny. It's a long story, but there's, there's this one gentleman I know. He's a, a very wise, sage old man, and he's like looped into everyone and everything. He's, his, his name's Mike Joyner. He's like a performance expert, physician at the Mayo Clinic, whatever. He's old. He's great. He's at that stage of his life and his career where he can just shoot from the hip. And um, I told him about the bear. We talked regularly and sent him a video. And apparently he's like obsessed with the bear and tells everybody about the bear. So like all these people are like, tell me about the bear. I'm like, who told you about the bear? They're like, Mike told me about the bear. So the oh, bear. It wasn't Mike. <laughs> no. All right. So I did not know about Western North Carolina and particularly Asheville in Buncombe County, which is where we are now, that it has the highest bear per capita of anywhere in the country. Oh, wow. And I think maybe anywhere in the world. So first things first, they're black bears. Thank God. For those that don't know bears, black bears are enormous oversized like raccoons, basically, and brown bears will eat you. So these are not the kinds of bears that will eat you. Um, that said, you still don't want to piss one off because they're very large. And I was in my garage training. And for those that really want specifics, what made it especially terrifying is I was doing something called a bent over row. 
So I'm hinging at the hips, my butt is out back, and I'm rowing a barbell to my chest. And my face is down because you want your spine in alignment. Maybe there's like a slight look up, but I'm in the zone and it's a pretty heavy set. And I drop the barbell and I look up and there's this fucking bear's face like a foot from me. Just like came over to sniff the barbell and me like to see if there's any blueberries in there. And it was so wild and terrifying and exhilarating. It was one of those moments where I cannot like it. The only thing that got me from the barbell to like the staircase on the way back into the garage was adrenaline. Like there was no consciousness there for what happened. However, it happened. Like I was there and then, um, the bear still hung around for a little bit. So I, you know, said a few words to it and then I'm like, all right, you know, no one's going to believe me. <laughs> so talk about 21st century, like I'm going to pull out my phone and like snap a video of the bear walking away. So I have evidence and everything of this enormous bear and my encounter with it. Um, the funny thing is since then I've seen all kinds of bears around here, but I've never had one breathing on me and there is zero exaggeration. It was two feet from my face. Yeah. That's super close. Like we have bears in our neighborhood as well. And I thought about that story of like, what would I do if I was just in black bears or brown bears, black, black bears. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. So, but still, so, so, so they are, the attacks are rare. And like, that's the first thing that my anxious brain did. I like immediately calmed down. And then I Google like black bear attacks and there's like maybe one a year in like the whole state. And then I'm like black bear deaths. And it's like maybe one a year in the whole country. So I did my research and I realized that like, I'm significantly more likely to be harmed by like stepping on a snake than I am a black bear. So that diffused me quite a bit because they really have no interest in, in us other than like, if you're going to feed them grapes. But when you're face to face with one, it's scary. Yeah, I wanted to bring up the the bear story because a lot of people listening to the show spend time out in the woods and they're really afraid of seeing a bear. Um, but yeah, you can come face to face with one and still be alive to tell the tale. Black bear, though. Brown bear, yeah. it's a whole different yeah, brown animal. bear will mess you up. <laughs> yeah. And a whole different animal, like literally and figuratively. Yeah. Um, I. Um, yeah, I, I would not feel nearly as comfortable being out and about if there were the most brown bears per capita. It's why I don't live in Alaska, I guess. Yeah, so this sort of comes to that um, principle of movement. And that's something that most people listening to this. Ooh, show, I like how you did that. Uh, see what I did there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, mo- most people um, listening, movement isn't the hardest thing for them to do um, or to practice on these principles. But I also wanted to ask you about movement because you were doing lots of running. You were trying to do a sub three hour marathon and then you switched to doing more like you're doing hiking and different things, but you switched to doing a lot more strength training work and you have like this great coach. So I wanted to ask how switching up your main focus with your movement has changed, if at all, like your self-perception or your confidence or anything regarding that. Mm, That's a great question. So First thing is first, the practice around movement is very broad intentionally. I don't believe that some physical activity is better than others. I think, again, it depends on the person, the time in their life, the situation around them. But from a feeling more grounded, more stable, more strong where you are, It doesn't matter if you run, lift weights, walk, hike, garden, row, swim, ride, you name it. So from a mental health strength stability standpoint, anything that gets your heart rate up is good. So zooming into my own physical practice, I grew up playing power sports, particularly basketball and football. And by the end of high school, I was like a good at the regional level, maybe the state level, excuse me, in high school football in the States, region comes before state. So it's not like region in America. It's like region in the state you live. So I was like a good high school football player, right? Good enough to play small college ball, not good enough to play the big school. So I didn't play in college and that was the end of my football career. And that's when I got super into endurance sports. And the reason for that is my training for football had always been for the purpose of the game. 
So when the game went away, why would I be in the weight room? Like I wasn't into like looking buff. I just wanted to be a good football player. So I got into endurance sports and then I did that for like the last 15, almost 20 years. And as you mentioned, I really wanted to run a sub three hour marathon. For me, that was like my running Everest. And I didn't, I ran a 301 in change and throughout my running career in triathlons and all that endurance sports, I always felt like I was fighting against my body. So a lot of runners to run it like that sub three level, it helps to be strong, but also to be lean. And I'm only 5'11". And for me to get to like 5'11", 170, felt like I was malnourished. And that's just like a normal height and weight, but I am just broad and like my body likes to be bigger. So I had that going on. I had the trying so hard and getting so close and not doing it. I had our first son, Theo, on the way. I had constant chronic injuries, probably from fighting against my body in this sport. And eventually I was just exhausted. I'm like, I gave it my all, I'm done. And for about three weeks, it was terrible. I felt like this huge part of my identity was gone. Well, well, and I became like pretty known in the running community for my work. So never for being a good runner, but for like my work, I'm like, well, are people still going to take my work seriously if I don't even run anymore? And I'd see runners and I'd feel like a little like empty or like, oh, like I can't, like, I'm not that anymore. And then after about three weeks, I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I've been torturing myself for the last 15 years. Like, why have I been doing this? Because I, I, I practice what I preach and I, I just know the power of physical practice. It wasn't like I was going from running to nothing, but I am like, all right, I'm going to like go back to what my body seems to want to do, which is strength training. And I'm not going to have to stress out about getting injured all the time. I'm not going to feel like um, I'm fighting against myself. So for the last three years, I've been strength training and um, it's been great. And it just goes to show like how much of this is like genetic, like hard work can get you really good at just about anything. But then to get to like the equivalent of like that sub three top 1% level, genetics matters a lot. So I trained my ass off for like 10 years to try to run a sub three marathon and obsessed about it for probably two of those 10 years and never did. After like a year in the gym, I was back. I was like the equivalent of sub three in weightlifting with like very little effort and having fun. So it's also just a really good reminder that like, you know, th- like th- the genetics actually matters quite a bit for a lot of stuff. Yeah. Sorry. That was like a really long answer. Well, it kind of ties into some of these principles that acceptance one is the one that kind of popped out to me. Yeah, for sure. Just like accepting that, Hey, in my case, it was like running felt like work and it's okay for it to feel like work some of the time, but the whole thing can't feel like work because it's not my job. I'm not a pro athlete. I heard my friend Ryan say like, I'm not trying to win it my hobby. And that like really hit me hard because it's like, wait, this is just a hobby. And because I was constantly like, fighting myself. I was injured at least once a year. So then that became stressful. And it's just like, nope, I don't have to do this. Yeah. So it's like that you weren't striving in a healthy way anymore. And then you talked about identity, like when we first started talking, um, and just like shifting, giving yourself permission to shift that identity was something that felt kind of hard at first, but then you're like, no, I'm still me, even if I'm not running. Yeah. And then I know you listen to like the growth equation podcast. I don't know if you heard maybe like three weeks ago, even with strength training, like it's been like, now I'm like, huh, like, you know, I'm starting to get to a level there where like, I'm, I'm getting to the place where like improvements are going to be harder to come by. It's like, maybe I'd rather just like go on long walks with my dog. I don't know. Maybe I think when that point comes and inevitably it will, I'll probably hold on a lot less. Cause like, I know from the running experience that nothing happens if you just switch. I think the big thing to point out though, is make sure there's some physical practice there, but you don't have to be a lifelong runner or a lifelong weightlifter, lifelong yoga person. You can be, and it's great, but there's nothing wrong with switching unless you're a pro athlete, in which case you should stay in your sport. But even then, you know, once you're past your prime, let me check myself. There's huge power in switching because it's really emotionally hard to be the best at something and then get older and then have performance suffer versus like, okay you know, I'm not projecting for you, but it's like, okay, I was the best mountain biker in the world and I loved it. And there's two different roads. One is I'm going to age with grace 
And I'm still going to be on the bike when I'm 65 because I just love the bike. The other is this thing is so wrapped up in competing for me that the best way to put it down and go on with my identity is to just totally put it down and get into rowing or canoeing or weightlifting or something else completely. And again, there's no right or wrong, but different people, different points of your life are going to make different choices. Yeah. I think it comes back to the, like we talked about why you're doing it in the first place. For me personally, it's like, I love riding my bike and I love competing. And regardless if I'm on top of the podium or I'm just figuring out, Hey, what do I have in me today? Like, what can I learn about myself today? That's what's going to keep me in it because it's, it's about that constant learning about who I am. And you learn a lot yeah. about yourself when you aren't doing as well as you would hope too. <laughs> yeah. How have you found it shifting from like full-time pro athlete, just focused on being the best in the world on your bike to biking, being a part of your life. And I assume a big part, but not the whole thing. Was that a hard shift? Like, did it, you feel like you could constantly be doing more on the bike? Um, it, it wasn't a hard shift because I never focused on it as the number one only like, mm. I, cause I, I just, I don't know. I just can't like, I, I have so many interests and I love so many things that I was never like the only thing that matters is mountain bike racing and my results. It was always a lot of these other things. And that again, ties back into like, well, why am I doing this? And at first it was to prove to others that I was lovable and like, you can go down all kinds of roads with this. But once I kind of figured out, Oh, I don't have to do that. It was about like, how can I tell people about this experience so that th that can help them. And I think yeah. that having that greater purpose behind why I do it, that it doesn't matter if I'm number one or number 30 or whatever. It's like, if I can still be connecting with people in that way and helping them, then I still feel really good about what I'm doing too. Yeah. And I have a sense at how you're going to answer this question, but do you think that you would have been better if you would have focused just on riding your bike? No. Um, there were times where it's like, you have to be like, there are like short periods of time where it's like, I'm doing whatever, 20 hours a week of training. And that's the only thing I can do. And Ooh, I hate it. I absolutely hated those weeks. Like I said, I, I don't yeah. like riding my bike after this. Like I just, that's just not me. And for some people that is them, but I need to have lots of different things going on. And that's just, yeah. that's just me. So, yeah, I figured you'd say that. I think that's such an important lesson for anyone listening that like there are the Michael Jordan last dance documentary is only one way to go about excellence. And there are other paths to excellence and the other paths are every bit as powerful. Yeah. And to wrap it up, get Brad's book, the practice of groundedness to learn how to stay grounded while you're trying to strive for excellence. <laughs> Nice. You did that twice now. <laughs> there is. And, um, how about you? Tell us about your Patreon community. Cause I think that a lot of people do Patreon, but you guys are doing it exceptionally well. Oh, thank you. So as you mentioned, the growth equation is hardly a company, I guess, but the small media platform that I run with my collaborative partner, Steve Magnus, where our podcast lives, our newsletter lives, all of our blog posts live, where you can learn more about our books. And our goal was to create this like one-stop shop for all things evidence-based, sustainable performance and well-being. And a big part of that was when we decided to launch a podcast, we really wanted to keep it sponsorship-free. For us, it was important to not feel like we had to have any filter on what we say. And at the time, so many of the, the people that wanted to sponsor or the companies, nothing wrong with it, but just not aligned with our values. So we decided to do it in a way that is 100% member supported. So we have a Patreon community, which is a place where you can make small donations anywhere from $5 a month to $20 a month to support the growth equation, the podcast, the newsletter, sponsorship-free, all of that. And as we've grown, the hosting costs of the newsletter have gone way up. So it's not like Steve and I are getting rich here. It's like barely covering our costs. And what we've done with the Patreon community is we've really tried to integrate everything that we do in it. So we're big believers in reading and community and intimate discussion. So at all levels of support, you are in a book club where we read one book a month and then we meet on Zoom to talk about the book. And like 99% of the time, we have the author come join us to talk about the book and to field questions. 
We also have our own books and we sign them for the Patreon supporters. And then at the more, um, the gold level, we have a quarterly mastermind group, which is the same group of people coming together uh, once a quarter to do kind of like AMA, ask me anything, but it's not me. It's like, we're all asking each other things. So it's a group of people that really buy into these principles that are trying to apply them, whether it is in their work as an educator or a athlete or a lawyer or a physician, you name it. So yeah, it's cool. We, we, we really view it less as like revenue stream and more as a like super fan community that happens to cover our costs. And let's see, it goes to show how little we view it as a revenue stream. I can hardly remember the website. It's www.patreon.com backslash the growth equation. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show multiple times and for sharing all of this wisdom and giving people an opportunity to maybe look inside a little bit and learn a little bit more about themselves and then provide these tools, these books, your podcast, the Patreon page for people to continue on that journey. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I love the work that you do. Uh, Obviously we're kindred spirits. So thanks. (laughs) Thanks. I hope you enjoyed that episode with Brad. I always feel really energized and also a little bit more wise after I talk to Brad and read his books. So make sure that you check out The Practice of Groundedness. Pick it up at your local bookstore or online. The audiobook is also fantastic. Check out his other work and also The Growth Equation. Their newsletter and their podcast is fantastic. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show because that really helps it find others. And I really appreciate you guys. I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. See you next week.